This is Relatively Prime, talking in the mathematical domain. I am Samuel Hansen. Mathematics is not always the easiest thing to talk about or to write about, especially when the audience is not other mathematicians. This doesn't mean that talking about math is impossible, though, just that it takes some experience and maybe some tricks. Of course, that leaves us with two very clear questions. What are these tricks, and how can I get this experience? These are things that I have long thought about, so in order to answer them, I gathered together an elite group of mathematical communicators to put on a panel at the 2017 joint mathematics meetings called What We Talk About When We Talk About Mathematics. And on this episode of Relatively Prime, I will share with you some of the highlights from this panel. I, of course, started it all by introducing myself to everyone who is there, but you all have heard all of that already. So instead, let's jump straight to our first panelist, Beth Malmskog's self-introduction. Two things first, which are a little important to know before we jump in. I asked each panelist to share a story of a moment when they tried and failed to communicate mathematics. Failure, of course, not being a bad thing, just that thing that happens 99% of the time and which eventually leads to success. And the second thing is that one of the panelists, Colin Adams, had another event scheduled right before this panel. And... I think that that's just about everything. So let's jump into the panel. So I, just to tell you a little bit about me, I'm a number theorist. Um, I'm a professor at Villanova University. This is my day job. Um, but I really also love to talk about mathematics, and I sort of do it every chance I get. I also, when I was um, in graduate school, I started a radio show that was mostly music, but it featured a call-in math quiz every week. So the idea is I would come up with a puzzle. I was really excited to do this. So I would come up with a puzzle and share it on the air and then have people call in and win a Super Monday Buffet t-shirt. Um, and this was sort of the pinnacle of my life at the time. I was so excited to be able to do this with people. Um, my heroes were, as you may be able to guess, click and clack of car talk fame. Um, I, wanted to, I wanted to be both click and clack in one. Um, so my first puzzle, um, I... Oh, just everyone? Colin Adams. <laughs> Welcome, Colin. Thank you. <laughs> so my first puzzle, I, was, I spent a lot of time preparing it, and I thought really a lot about how to explain it, and now I've completely forgotten it, so I can't tell you what it was. Um, but I spent a lot of time working up to it and thinking about exactly how to explain it really well. I read it on the air. I read out the um, phone number that people were supposed to call put on some music, waited, waited, and nothing, absolutely nothing. I was like, oh no, what's going to happen? So I waited for 15 minutes um, during my set of music that I was playing, and nobody called, and I said, okay. Um, so I went back and I tried to re-explain the puzzle in a different way. And I was like, okay, now here's, here's the idea of what you're doing. And put the music on, or, you know, read the phone number, put the music on, again, waited and waited, nothing happened. Um, in the third round, my computer science professor called in. He was like my ringer in the audience. And he was like, oh, you know, Beth, I think what you really need to do is explain this aspect of the puzzle. And I was like, oh, okay. And so I went on again and did the puzzle all over again, explaining it a third way. 
And during the next 15 minutes, actually, you know, one of my friends called in and could answer the puzzle. Um, so I was so devastated when no one tried to answer my puzzle the first two times. I was like, what am I doing wrong? Is no one listening? Am I just speaking into a vacuum here? But I realized from this a couple of things. First of all, I can't be both click and clack at once. Um, I think that th what makes click and clack magical and what ended up being magic for me in my show was a sense of dialogue, okay? So the fact that click and clack um, explain and ask questions live on air is what makes those puzzles something that people can really get their heads around. So what I did from going forward there was I brought in my um, producer, my, the head of the radio station, to come in and, and be the, the clack to my click. Um, and he, we would go over the puzzles, and he would ask questions whether he needed to um, know the answers or not, just wherever he thought that it would sort of fill in some more interesting information. And from then on, my uh, puzzles were magical, um, except for the ones that I screwed up because I didn't think about the answer hard enough ahead of time. <laughs> I, I mean, I, you, you learned something very useful there. I, mm -hmm. You learned something different than what I would have learned. I would have just learned always have a plant in the audience. <laughs> <laughs> that is also useful. <laughs> just, just like, well, like you, te you text friend, like, I need you to call right now. Just <laughs> here's the answer. Just call, please. Yeah. So what I did is I sort of brought my plant into the studio with me. Right? Yeah. So they could do it. They could be right there. Well, thank you very much. Uh, Dana? Let me introduce myself because I actually wasn't scheduled to be on this panel, but Samuel needed a, 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 a pinch hitter, and so I, I agreed to and, do it. And thank you. Thank you so yeah. much for doing it. Anyway, so my name is Dana McKenzie, and I'm a my wife doesn't like me when I say this, but I'm a former mathematician. She says, you're still a mathematician. Uh, anyway, I now work as a freelance writer. I've been doing that for about 20 years. And I think when I'm on a panel with Samuel and, uh, and Beth, I feel a little bit like a, a dinosaur because uh, I still do the written kind of communication. And I think in this day and age, you know, there's so much with vlogs and so forth that is, is exciting. And I'm sort of not, not into that generation, I'm afraid. So, but anyway, so I still, uh, I'm a writer. And uh, I write mostly for popular science type magazines. And I've also written a couple books. And mathematicians might know me best for uh, the series, What's Happening in the Mathematical Sciences, which is put out by the AMS. So um, I've been doing, I've written the last four of those. So uh, Samuel asked for this for an anecdote about a failure to communicate. So as I said, I used to be a math professor and uh, around 20 years ago, I had sort of a midlife crisis and decided that what I really wanted to do was be a writer. And I found out about a, a wonderful program at the University of California at Santa Cruz called the Science Communication Program which takes people with a science background, with a science degree, and teaches them journalism so that they can then become you know, writers or, or radio producers or, or whatever. So I, uh, I was so ecstatic when I learned about this program because uh, I just couldn't believe that something like that existed, that you could actually take courses and learn to be a, a journalist. So the story I wanted to tell is, is uh, of something that happened that year. At this point, you know, so I was still very much, you know, I was learning journalism and I was still very much in an academic mathematical mindset. And we took a semester of, of news writing where we learned how to write for newspapers. And then we got to a semester of, of magazine writing. 
And one of the things that we covered in that semester is how to pitch an article. So I was really excited. I was really jazzed about this because in the news semester, we weren't really able to do all that much science or math. Um, it was learning actually how to do news stories, crime and politics, stuff like that. But now we were really doing science. And so, uh, so I really wanted to do my first math story. And as a mathematician, my big interest was geometry. And so I thought, okay, hot diggity dog, I'll do a story about hyperbolic geometry, one of my favorite subjects. And so I wrote out this you know, query uh, for an article I would write about hyperbolic geometry and turned it into the professor. And I, I still remember him reading this thing and sort of these furrows on his eyebrows getting, <laughs> his eye, getting deeper and deeper, you know, and he's you know, rubbing his head, trying to understand, trying to make any sense of what I wrote, because th there was nothing there that was English as far as he could tell. <laughs> so, um, so, and I learned a, a great lesson from that. Of course, you know, uh, the, the, uh, the pitch didn't fly and I ended up writing about something else. But what I learned was that, well, first of all, there's a huge, language barrier between mathematicians and the rest of the world. And also, this was something I learned throughout this year, that uh, when you're writing articles for the public, you want to think about telling stories. That's the way people learn, and it's, it's, it's how you engage people. And if you want to write about mathematics, you embed it in a story. Journalists actually don't usually talk about writing articles. They talk about writing stories. They say, I wrote a story about this today and so forth. And I think that the, the word is not accidental. Almost any article you'll see in the popular media is at heart a story. And that means it has people in it. And it means it has a beginning, a middle, and an end. And so the principles that you use for telling a story are the principles you use for writing the article. And it may be that the article, I mean, ideally the article will involve some mathematics. It may just be about a mathematician. That's a great way to write an article. And I think that's probably a lot of what you're doing on your podcast. You know, you just find an interesting mathematician, get him to tell his story, and there's, there's your article or there's your podcast. But um, people, ordinary people outside mathematics relate to people now, they won't relate to the mathematics unless you show them the person. So that to me was the big lesson. And so when I pitched this article on hyperbolic geometry, I was just thinking about hyperbolic geometry. You know, that's the way I describe it to a mathematician. But, you know, for writing for the public, I had to think about what story do I want to tell. So to sort of give an ending to this story, because stories have beginnings, middles, and ends. Um, I finally did get to write my hyperbolic geometry article. It was years later, like about 16 years later, um, and there's actually a chapter for a book. Thank you, Colin? Okay, uh, so, so uh, I'm Colin Adams. I teach at Williams College, uh, where I've been for a long time. And before I ever wanted to be a mathematician, I wanted to be a writer. Uh, and just give you a little bit of history. So I wanted to be a writer when I was a kid, but I ended up going to MIT as an undergraduate, and they're really not focused on writing, they're <laughs> focused on you know, other things. And, and when I was at MIT, I fell in love with mathematics, and so I kind of gave up on the writing, and I started doing the mathematics. And then I got to Williams College, and, I, and, and as a hobby, I started writing again, and I actually published my first story in the Williams Literary Review, which was really for undergraduates, but they let me publish something in there, and that was my first publication. And then I realized that I could, I could do writing about mathematics, but, but my take on writing about mathematics was humor in mathematics. And so I started doing sort of humorous math writing. And I, I took some of those articles to, to Ina Mete, who was one of the editors at the time, was one of the editors for Springer. She's now at AMS. 
And I said, could I publish a book out of these? And she said, a book? No, no, no. Why don't you do a column in the Mathematical Intelligencer? And the Mathematical Intelligencer comes out four times a year. And so they gave me a column in the Mathematical Intelligencer. And so for over the last, you know, I don't know, must be about 15 years now, uh, I have to come up with four stories a year for the Mathematical Intelligencer. And so I've been producing those stories. I, I turn them into theater. And I, it's, I don't know if any of you got a chance to go to the theater we put on last night. So every, at the joint math meetings every night, every time we put on math theater, and it's usually based on those columns. And then I, I've been writing a bunch of books. I have about nine books out. One of them is a comic book about not three called Why Not with an attached toy. Um, there's another one, which is a compendium of those stories. There's a novel, my most Recent one was a novel called Zombies and Calculus. I'm working on a second novel, not on zombies, on something else. And so it's fun to do those things. And then my wife was an actress, and I used to sit on her opening nights, and I'd see her doing her thing, and I'd, I'd just sit there and i think, okay, how could I use acting to do math, to, to present math? And I always love this idea of thinking about how do you get people to listen long enough to see the beauty of the mathematics involved? And so that was always kind of the goal, is to think about unusual ways to do that. So I created this character, Mel Slugbait. And Mel Slugbait is a real estate agent from Texas, and he wears a green plaid suit, and has a Texas accent, and a green plaid tie, and, and cowboy boots. And this was when I did not have tenure, by the way. And <laughs> so for the, the first time I ever did it, I did it at Williams for Colloquium at Williams. And I really was not sure if this would be the end of my career. You know, if they'd, they'd watch this and say, OK, we are not going to give this guy tenure. But luckily, it went well. And so, and so it worked out fine. And, and, and they liked it. And it was fun to do. And then I started getting invitations. And it turned out it really sort of scared me in my career when Mel Slugbait started getting more invitations to speak than I did. You know, and it sort of grew. And, and, and the trick here is, got to tell you, this is the trick this is a trick for life, actually, is find a niche no one else is in, okay? And so for me, it, it turned out to be math humor. There was very little competition in math humor. My biggest competition was Ed Berger, and he had the office next to mine. So it was like, you know, and so it was a good situation to be in. So I got a lot of invitations. So anyway, the story I'm going to tell about my failure was one of those invitations. So I got an invitation to speak as Mel Slugbait, and it was from a school in California. And so they flew me out, and so I flew out on a, on a Thursday, you know, and I had to get someone to teach my classes for me, you know, a six-hour flight, got to California, put me up for the night. The next day comes, and it's time for the talk, and it's a giant auditorium, huge auditorium, and I've got my, you know, silly suit on, you know, and I got all dressed already, and I come out, and there are three people in the audience, and, this, and they're all spread out over this <laughs> giant auditorium, you know? And the thing is, if you're going to act like an idiot, you can get away with it if there's enough people in the audience that, that there are people that are seed people who are laughing, you know? And then they help the other people laugh and the other people to sort of appreciate the joke. But when there's three people in the room, nobody laughs, and then you feel like an idiot, and then you act like an idiot. And so you just, and so the whole thing was just, you know, I'm going through the thing, but I'm like embarrassed to be doing it. And it was just a complete disaster. And then I had to spend another day there before my flight went back. And then, and so it was a huge amount of effort on my part. And it was just a complete disaster. And so, so I, I don't exactly know what the lesson is other than you sort of maybe should communicate with people to make sure that you're not going to find yourself in that situation. Because you don't really have control of, of, of the audience and how, what they're doing to get an audience there. And so, so that's kind of the risk you run. But I strongly urge, I mean, the, the thing that I really enjoyed about doing this, I strongly urge, do stuff, just do weird stuff, you know, get out there because it's just, it's hard for people to sit through traditional 
math lectures, especially undergraduates or high school students. And if you can kind of come up with fun, unusual things to do, they love it. And if the jokes are stupid, they don't care. They're just, it's a joke, you know, and they just, they're happy to have, have that sort of uh, opportunity to laugh. So. How deeply do you think about your audience? Definitely really critical to think about the audience in, in, in any context. So, so for instance, in writing a book, you have to know who you're writing it for, right? And you have to have thought very deeply about, is, is this you know, for high school students? Is it for college students? Is it for a general audience you know, with an interest in math? Is it, is it you know, sort of more of a textbook type? Is it more, you know, what, what, what kind of a book are you trying to create and what is the audience for the book? And if you miss that and you sort of mix it up, it's gonna be a disaster. So that's, that's critical in a case like that. The same thing holds when you're giving a talk. If you're giving a talk and I'm, you know, doing some kind of, you know, like even a fun talk, something like that, is it a high school audience? Is it a college audience? Is it an MAA meeting audience? And, and you find out very quickly, as I did the hard way, that when you get it wrong, you know, there's a certain audience that loves you. You know, like when, when I do a Mel Slugbait at a MAA sectional meeting, typically that goes really well. It's a bunch of PhD mathematicians. They get all the jokes. Everything goes really well. And then I do it for a different audience and they laugh at different jokes, you know, and they, they understand different things and they, and you have to tone it down and you have to sort of plan ahead for, you know, what, what works and what doesn't. And I give talks all the way from, from kindergarten up through graduate schools. And, and it's just really, really important to understand who your audience is. And if, if you get it wrong, it can be a disaster. Yeah, I totally agree with that. Um, audience is something that, that's constantly on my mind. The, the what's happening in the mathematical sciences, I have a really clear conception of who I'm writing for, that I'm writing for people who are like a college student who is maybe either a freshman or sophomore, who's you know, good at math and interested in it, but wants to know what's, you know what's going on in math and what can I do in math, uh, or maybe a math major. Um, so that's definitely a lev the level I'm aiming at. And so I can put a little bit more mathematics in those articles, way more than I would dare to in a uh, article for the general public. Yeah, so, I, and I totally agree with what Colin said, that the success of an article really does depend on, on getting, getting the material right for the audience. Um, I did want to say one little anecdote. I, I sort of prepared a second failure anecdote just in case I'd have time. And it relates to this audience issue. A couple years after I got out of the Santa Cruz program, uh, I went to a workshop at MSRI in California that was for science, for mathematicians and journalists. And it was supposed to build bridges across this, this divide between the mathematics community and, and the media. And they invited some mathematicians to give presentations. And on the first day, the first lecture was by a very distinguished mathematician who I, I respect a lot. I'm not going to mention his name because I don't want to embarrass him. But so he was trying to give a talk on his area of math that the journalists would understand. And from the very beginning, like you could tell that the journalists in the audience did not understand the word. And after it was over and there was this sort of deathly silence, uh, one of the journalists said, let's go back to the first slide. You know, and journalists, they're, they're, they are willing to, to ask embarrassing questions and stuff like that. So he goes back to the first slide and says, what does this mean? The word was matrix. So he'd used the word matrix 
And to the average person, most people don't know what a matrix is, but if it's anything, it might be, there's a geological meaning, like, a, you know, you can have a gem in the matrix of materials. So most people, when they think matrix, they don't think an array of numbers. And so if you're gonna write for the really general public, you probably should use words like an array of numbers instead of using matrix, or at least if you want to use the word matrix, the first time you use it, say a matrix is an array of numbers. The other thing that is so funny on that first transparency, uh, one of the journalists said, raised his hand and said, well, at least I understand what that symbol means. And it was a pie, but the, the mathematician was using it to represent a product. <laughs> and so, so even the one thing the journalists thought they understood, they didn't understand. So uh, t it was a great example of the huge gap, the huge divide in just the terminology. And so you have to really think about that if you're talking with the public or if you're gonna talk with a journalist, you know, one, somebody wants to interview you about your work and I have to think about what will they really understand? And, you know, words like matrices or symbols like pi, you know, they, they may be, mean something different to the general public than they do to you. If you're interested in math, then you probably know some math, okay? So like, if you um, are thinking of sort of dumbing down or oversimplifying in some way, your math interested and probably somewhat math literate audience is going to catch on to that and be insulted very easily. And so what I look for when I'm reading books that are supposed to be for a general audience or articles that are for a general audience are tricks for how you can include real math that can really satisfy the people that really care and know about it, but at the same time really tell that same story. Like you don't want to just include a bunch of math gibberish to make things seem mathy necessarily. Um, and you don't want to, um, like for, if you're trying to tell a large story, like get bogged down in over explaining every single thing that maybe the more literate, math, math literate people in your audience won't even know. But if you can somehow tell a, tell a great story and include the real math for those that are interested, but, but give something for people who don't even get the math so that if people decide to quit thinking about the math in the middle, they still have something else to hold on to. I think that's a really valuable thing. And I think that uh, Cedric Viani did this really well in his book, Birth of a Theorem. Like you can almost, if you want to include really hard math and you, don't, you really want to avoid condescending to someone, you can just include it and people will read it like they read the foreign language passages in a, like, in a Cormac McCarthy novel or something, right? They'll just see it and be like, cool math stuff, great. And it's real math, so the people that really know will care and be excited and be like, yeah, okay, I got it. But those that don't can pass over it and still enjoy your great story. So when you're writing for what you think of as a truly general audience, I think you need to try and find tricks because it's a very tricky balance for math in particular. This is, this is something I actually think that some other uh, disciplines actually do a little bit better in you know, various physics or astronomy or chemistry or even biology stuff. In some of the general audience, they will include things that most people don't know. But I, one, one thing that I've, I've been thinking about a lot recently due to some issues I was having with an editor over a radio piece was, guess what? Everyone has the entire sum of world knowledge in their pocket all the time. I mean, not, clearly not everyone, but a huge amount of people now just carry around, you know, smartphones. Uh, and so if you use a term or something that they don't know, they have the ability to look it up pretty quickly. 
Uh, and so I, I agree, you don't have to, you can include some things that people aren't going to understand unless they're already mathematically literate, as long as it's not like the entire crux of the story. But you can just mention this thing and then if they're interested, they can go look it up. If they're not interested and there's still another story involved, they will continue consuming the story like because that's what they're interested in. But maybe at the end, they're like, I like that story so much. There was that one thing I didn't understand. Maybe I will go look at them. That's a way to, like, not only are they consuming that, then all of a sudden they're like, huh, maybe I do want to know about this because I was interested enough earlier. So you can maybe get that not math literate audience a little bit more math literate because they like this story enough that they're like, oh, now I want to go look up that other thing. And I can because, once again, I have the entire sum of world knowledge in my pocket. Can I add one, one thing? I, I was reminded of a story when Dana was telling his story about, about you know, your audience and knowing your audience. So this, this happened at a, at a state university in, in California. I won't say which one. And they're a very famous mathematician in the department, perhaps the most famous mathematician in that department. And at that school, they had a rotating talk that was given by each department, one a year, to a general audience. And so it became the math department's turn. And because this person was the most famous person in the department, it automatically fell to him. Nobody had any choice in the matter. And everyone was scared to death. You know, this, this person was not known for being able to give a general talk at all. But so they asked him, he said, oh, no problem. Don't worry, it'll be fine. I'll, yeah, I understand what you're looking for. Don't, don't worry. And so the day of the talk came and a big audience, a very general audience showed up. And his first line was, let mu be har measure, okay? And the audience is sort of aghast. He goes, for those of you unfamiliar with har measure, just think of it as Lebeg measure. <laughs> Why is the perception of mathematical communication what it is? It's not something that the mathematical community as a whole seems to put much of an effort into. It's not something that they necessarily think is something should be heavily appreciated. I mean, Francis Sue mentioned it yesterday during his talk. How about we actually start taking into account people who are writing articles for general audiences when we're thinking about tenure, when we're thinking about whether or not someone's doing their job well. And so uh, I was wondering if we could talk a little bit about this, this issue of perception of mathematical communication as, as something that, whether uh, it, it's something that we should be putting more emphasis towards. I mean, clearly we all think that we should be putting more emphasis towards it. It's kind of uh, preaching to the choir a bit. Yeah, I'd like to, to jump in, although I'm not really in the mathematics community anymore. I was, and, but definitely leaving the mathematical community and becoming a, a communicator gave me a different impression of, of how mathematicians do things and how people in other subjects do things. And it doesn't reflect too well on mathematicians. Um, so one thing I noticed, for example, was one way I like to get story ideas was sometimes to peruse the NSF database of recent grants. And every grant uh, abstract has, you know, is supposed to explain to a, to a sort of relatively general audience what that grant's supposed to be about. And the grants in any other subject were much more comprehensible than in mathematics. In math, you know, the people just did not know what they were doing, how to explain it to, uh, to a general public. And very often they were doing the same sort of thing that, that Colin was talking about. Oh, okay, a simpler way of saying a hard measure is a Lebesgue measure. And if you're a journalist or anybody reading, reading this grant summary, you can't, you can't tell what's going on. So I think mathematicians would really do well 
to pay attention to what scientists and other subjects do, you know, not just on their NSF grant applications, but uh, in general, as far as communicating to the public. I think there's a greater awareness in other disciplines that you need to talk to the public, that the public is paying your bills, your salaries and stuff like that through the grants and that you owe it to them to say what they're getting for their money. I think mathematicians have a borderline irresponsible attitude towards that. So, uh, you know, in terms of this issue of, you know, should departments be giving credit for people who are trying to, to, to present mathematics in, to a general audience, I, you know, I guess, I guess I'm mixed on that in the sense that I guess I feel that Yes, you should get credit for that, but but also you should be doing actual research. You know that it shouldn't be exclusively that. If you're going to come up for tenure, now I do think there's a there's a spectrum of schools in the United States, and and some schools that are going to say no, we're not going to give you any credit for that. I think there's quite a few schools who are going to say, assuming that you have done some real research and are doing some you know straightforward research, then this additional stuff that you're doing does count and that actually adds to your, your tenure file and, and, and it should count. But I mean, you know, ideally what you want is you want someone who is themselves an active mathematician talking about mathematics. And so you would like them to remain involved and then, and then you know, they can explain things. Some of these things are hard to explain. You know, if you work in cohomology theory, it's going to be tough to try to explain that to a general audience. I believe it can be done and I've seen Dana do amazing things, you know, and, and so I, I believe you can do it. But it's hard, and it's and and some people are going to struggle doing that more than you do. You know, you you happen to be really good at it. But it, I I also agree that this is really critical that more people do this, and especially if you've got tenure, do it. You know, get out there and do it, and 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 uh, you know, it's it's fun to do as well. So, I just wanted to um, just add on to that a little bit because. I mean, I'm a person who's really trying to do mathematical research because I love my research very much and also really trying to communicate. It's something I'm very excited about. Um, and I think there's a little bit of an a odd perception, which I would like to change and I think can change. It's part of natural, or mathematical culture and that can change. That if you're not spending all your time on research, then you're somehow not very serious about your research. And I like the idea of balancing doing communication and research, but somehow... The perception that I've found that I find very distasteful is that if you are devoting, because it takes a lot of time to try and communicate something well, and the idea is that if you're devoting some of your time to doing that, you must not really be a very serious researcher. And I think that that is sort of a baseline perception that I would really like to take down, because I think that the two feed each other and are both valuable and important. This is something that kind of came up in my mind as you were talking, and also um, that some areas are easier to explain than others. And this may be extremely heretical, but I would actually like to suggest that, that areas that are easy to explain to the public would be good areas to work on. So uh, I think that uh, it might be worth thinking about you know, that, that um, mathematicians should not determine what they work on solely based on what math other mathematicians are interested in. And they should actually think about society and they should think about ways they can contribute to society. And so, you know, perhaps you want to do this after you get tenure, as, as Colin was saying. But, but I think that um, if, if something is so impossible to convey that, you know, you can't possibly explain it to anybody outside mathematics, is that really something that's, that's, you know, worth doing? Probably it is. But maybe you should also consider doing some things that you can explain and that will be meaningful to the world. Okay, uh, so we have a little bit of time. Do we have any questions from out in the audience? Okay, 
I will need you to speak into the microphone because I'm recording. Uh, fair warning, this might end up on a podcast. Um, so I'm not sure this is a question or, or a comment exactly. Um, but you were talking about the differences in difficulty in explaining something like knot theory where you have a prop right there at your disposal versus like cohomology or something like that. And I think that if you're engaged with something like cohomology that might be very hard to explain to the general public, you still have that very human part of yourself that's engaged with this thing. And you can talk about that, right? And so I'm wondering if like, maybe that's something we haven't quite touched on is like, not just the importance of communicating mathematical content to the general public, but like the importance of changing the perception of like what mathematics is and how we mathematicians engage with mathematics as a very like human topic. Yeah, I think that's really important. And, uh, and that gets to the issue that I was talking about, about every story is actually a story and there's a person in there. So I try to, if I'm, if it's about, you know, if there are cohomology theorists, you know, I'll try to bring out whatever is human about them. And the first question I ask in most of my interviews is what got you interested in this subject? And I often find that's a great place to start. You know, they'll start telling the story and sometimes a really good story about, you know, what first got them interested in it. I mean, that is, uh, at least for me, I mean, with audio, the thing that I tend to do the most, like I'm always uh, interested in the human side of things. And uh, because uh, with audio, it's all very storytelling based and the storytelling, the best way to do storytelling is to, you know, talk about the humanness of it. Like, because if you want people to relate to you, remind them that you're a human. Uh, there is, I gave a talk on mathematical storytelling at the University of Arkansas a while ago, and I literally said, remind people that mathematicians are humans. Like just the number one thing, this is a human thing that we are doing. And in order to get people to engage, remind them that mathematicians are not these weird robots that do this thing that you hate. They're human beings who love something in the same way that you love what you do. Hey, uh, I want to thank you all for uh, coming here, listening to us talk about talking about talking about mathematics. I think I got that one right. Uh, and uh, how about we thank all of our panelists today? Uh, have a great last couple hours, and I hope everyone's planes actually take off, you know, tomorrow or the day after when you got rescheduled for. <laughs>
If you want your favorite equation mentioned in the next credits, leave a review. Tell me what it is. And also, you'll be helping new people find the show, which is super, super important. I also want to thank the anonymous Patreon supporter who told me that their favorite equation was the formula for the golden ratio. 1 plus the square root of 5 all over 2. Finally, Relatively Prime is licensed with a Creative Commons Attribution Share-alike license, so please feel free to remix my voice to say whatever you would like it to say, as long as you say. Those words originally came from Relatively Prime. So, that's it for this episode, which means that there's only one thing left for me to say. Have a math-terrific week, y'all.